John, will this size paper be big enough? jealous with your drink. I couldn't find my drink before. Haha. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. Hello and welcome. <clears throat> Hello and welcome. Oh, the phone's ringing. It's episode 57 of the world famous Touchboard Zoology Pod Rats. I'm Justin Timberlake. <laughs> uh, well, since we're going with that here, I'll be Beyonce. Well, hey, you look more attractive today. And Glenn just, Moray. Let's see what it is. No product endorsement. <laughs> they owe us money now. For those charlatans out there who don't believe I'm actually drinking, playing accurately playing the um, drinking game as we record. Uh-huh, uh-huh. To the best of my abilities. Okay, so um, we had a little bit of follow-up from uh, the previous episode. F you, Daryl. <laughs> F you. Do you remember any of it? Of course not. <laughs> no. No, I wrote some stuff down. But um You wrote one thing down. The thing I wrote down was Sphino Vipera, which goes back to a question many, many episodes back about the evolution uh, sorry, the uh, presence in the fossil record evidence for venomosity. <laughs> Another animal I forgot was Sphena vipera, which is a middle Jurassic Sphenodontian, so a member of the same group as the living Tuatara of New Zealand. Um, this is a Mexican Jurassic Sphenodontian, Sphena vipera, which has got indications from its teeth. Oh, anyway. the segment that never stops giving. Yeah, I'm sure there'll probably be more. Um, uh, any you been up to anything particularly exciting since the last since that many many months ago when we recorded the last episode? Uh yeah, I got an interesting email today. Oh, oh, this, is, this sounds like a good story. Yeah, it's not actually. It's a bit disappointing, and uh, I'm going to have to look at, I'm going to have to look it up because I forget what, what the no, nope, John forgot called. something. I'm drinking for that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Amazing, isn't it? Um, uh, the Zaphosaura, yeah. So you know how I was doing this commission for uh, the Kuwaiti Museum, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, you know they, it's they've gone in, they're all done. They're getting in, gone in for revision. And one of the revisions I've had back is, can we change the um, perspective on the Zaphosaura? Because for the one time, the only time in my entire life, Darren, in my entire life. I draw something with the head really close to the viewer and the body sort of <laughs> going away in sharp perspective because the only thing known from this thing is a head and it's an elasmosaur, right? So it seems if you just put it from the side, you end up with a reconstruction of an animal we don't know anything about the body of with a tiny little head, which is the thing we actually have a good fossil of that you can barely even see. So I thought, no, I'm going to pull a Lewis Ray. I'm going to do like a big head and a sharply receding body. And they said, oh, we don't like that. Can you make the change of perspective? <laughs> Lesson learned, Darren. Lesson um, learned. What is the animal? Z- Zaphosaur? That's an elasmosaur. Where's it from? I don't, I don't recognize I the name. I think it's um, uh, Middle East somewhere. And how's it sure. spelled? Zaffa. Exactly how it sounds. Z-A-F-A. Zaphosaur. Z is our word for Z, Americans. How funny is that? You mean it's the right one? <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't fit with the other letters as well, does it? But it does make a satisfying end to the alphabet. I was, I was thinking about it 
just yesterday the fact that it's one of those things that just how is it written? Do we write it Z E D? That's you, that's weird. I can't. I, I don't recognise the name Zaphosora, and I'm not getting any Google hits for it apart from popular articles. Not nothing technical. Uh, I found a paper. It's there. It's a mm. head. It's actually quite a nice fossil. It's a nice fossil head. Well, maybe I'm just out of date. Or skull, as we scientists can call it. Oh yeah, okay. I see a picture it's from somewhere in North Africa. Mm. Okay. All right. Woefully out of date on plesiosaurs, clearly. Um, I, had a, I have a funny story that's not similar, but kind of similar. Mm. Um, uh, a book I'm working on, I'm not, I'm not going to use any of the names here, but a book I'm working on, um, The a lot of the illustrations were done a few years back, and now I'm the consultant. I'm like, oh dear, there's a lot of things I'd like, it, I'd like to get changed here. One of them is that the artist had put way too many claws and hooves all they put claws and hooves all over the place <laughs> and a lot of these dinosaurs don't have the claws and hooves where this artist has put them so i was like you know can we can is it possible to get rid of them if, if we can't i understand budget blah 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 but um the artist did and what they've done in most cases is that, to me this doesn't seem like the cheap the cheapest and easiest thing to do but it's what they've done they've put things in the way so if the animals like this with its hands there's now like a fish (laughs) (laughs) or there's plants or something it's like really okay fine i would have thought it was i was just modifying um, one of my own pictures digitally and i found it pretty easy using photoshop just cropping. message for publishers here and this is going to sound terribly cruel to a lot of artists but if your artist can't modify things easily digitally, maybe find a different artist. <laughs> because this stuff is really easy. The artists need to learn how to do it, right? Especially when they're dealing with technical subjects like dinosaurs where they'll get feedback and they have to change things. Hey, I, so the, I just did, right, for this is the big book. I just did this at the top is Paracyclotosaurus. It's a Temnospondyl yeah. from um, New South Wales. Pretty cool looking animal. And, big head. Yeah. Crazy big head, and I based that on a reconstructed skeleton, which was famously monographed in 1958. And this posi- this position for the forelimb mm. looked up. It looks really high up. He'd he'd put the he'd put the scapula too far dorsally and posteriorly, posterior dorsally actually. And what and I like worked out that that had to be in a different position. And once I did that, I had to relocate the forelimb. But to relocate the forelimb, all I did digitally is cropped it out and replaced it and then you know cloned in the the uh, space that was left and and it totally worked and um and i'm not a, like a skilled artist i'm certainly not a professional artist so yes on that note um moving swiftly on shall we uh talk very briefly before going to cash for questions we're going to talk very briefly about one new paper uh, and this is the um uh brand new thing just appeared this month january 2017 by michael d collins based at the naval research laboratory in washington uh, uh, video evidence and other information relevant to the conservation of the ivory-billed woodpecker so this is oh my god I thought this was, <clears throat> do you have a mute button on your um i do but it's quite annoying when you use it because it goes click 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 and my new, my new button is on my actual headphone, and I don't know which way to get it to go on and off. So, oh, okay. yeah. yeah, we need well, better. Think, we th- need better equipment for mute buttons. Hint, hint. Oh. <laughs> I think that the clicking on and off is more is less offensive than the uh, 
coughing and spluttering or clearing of throats or whatever or sneezing that uh anyway um yeah this ivory build do ivory build woodpeckers survive in places like uh, louisiana um or or are people seeing other animals most notably the um is it the pileated woodpecker and uh, and making mistakes and this was a, this was a big thing a couple of years ago and um because of some uh, f- some film taken and um I, th- I thought it was done because because uh, the comebacks were pretty convincing. It was like, no, this was a mistake. People weren't seeing our real woodpeckers at all. They're seeing this other smaller common species, um, the pileated woodpecker. But no, this uh, this new study, January 2017, uh, he's saying that that he he saw one, he saw an ivory wood woodpecker in one of these swamps in Louisiana, and has some um, some film segments which I haven't watched, but um, you can look at stills. T- uh, taken from the footage and they seem to be woodpeckers and they seem to be large woodpeckers and they they were woodpeckers yes yeah and they seem to be woodpeckers bigger than the pileated woodpecker maybe but there's so many maybes in i mean the 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 evidence is so like crappy it's um I don't know. I, d- I don't know whether it's fair to sort of say no, just don't consider this further, or whether there is actually. I mean, you know, these are quite long-lived birds, and it's not impossible you could have individuals hanging on in a few places. Yeah, but, but so mm. the problem is that even if there are occasional ones, it seems pretty unlikely they'll spring back now, right? Oh yeah, yeah. You're, you're, I think at this stage you'd still be talking about functional extinction. So as yeah. is the case for quite a few things, there might be a handful of individuals, but there isn't enough for them to, you know, be viable. And they also have all kinds of problems in terms of finding suitable habitat and and that sort of thing. You know, yeah. as yeah. is as is you know quite a familiar story. A lot of these animals, the ivory bird woodpecker is a good example. They um they require you know, a certain area of land that's got a set number of resources in particular, in this case, you know, these particular giant trees so they can use as nesting trees. And in many of these places, they don't, they don't exist anymore. And that's part of the reason for the decline of the animal. So, um, so yeah, yeah this paper, uh, it's open access. It's, it's published in a journal I'd never heard of before, which is without sounding arrogant is often not a good sign. A, a journal called Helion, which I presume is a generic name of a bird. <clears throat> um, and, um, yeah, so uh, um, Michael Collins, Ivory Build Woodpecker Survival, here in January 2017. Uh, I'm sure. And, and, of course, there's lots more stuff we could say about the uh, Ivory Build Woodpecker. Fascinating uh, animal. So, um, right, should we move on? Yes. Yes, we have to, unfortunately. Okay, so um, do you want to talk about the Makili Memembe book? Nope. Nope? You don't want to talk about that. Sorry, I shouldn't have written that down. Forget that. Should not have written that down. Because I can, can, but it's long and tedious, and it's just a total tangent, and it relates to something that we covered like about 10 episodes back. So, okay, move on. Great. Should never have written that in. Right, so we're going to do this. We're going to move on to cash for questions then, huh? Cash for questions. Um, so first up, um, the second part of Isabel Walsh's question. Isabel Walsh. Yes, that's what I said. (laughs) 
Okay. <laughs> Thanks for that interjection. <laughs> she likes you, the cash for questions. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. That's a good Carry thing. Carry on, If you could bring back two species from extinction, one from prehistoric ones, prehistoric times. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Oh, my God. Thank you. I made some fake drinking noises there. Sorry. Can you shut up for like five seconds at a time? Okay. <laughs> you could bring back two species from extinction, one from prehistoric times and one from historic. Which would they be? Assume they fit in a perfectly. They fit in perfectly in the modern world. My would mine would be thylacines and terror birds. Maybe terror birds. Maybe terror birds. Implying she might change her mind when she actually meets one. Oh. <clears throat> yeah, so do you want to go first? Um, I should have put some thought into this. Mm. Two mm. species from extinction. One from prehistoric times, one historic. So historic, yeah, thylacine is pretty high on my list. Um, and I do think they're extinct. We talk a lot about thylacines on social media, particularly on Twitter, uh, in no small part due to Beth Windle's um, thylastream and tweeting of many thylacine-related issues. Um, she's actually doing a book on them right now. So, yeah, yeah, I probably is thylacine, but then there's a few others like dodos and uh, – do I care enough about passenger pigeons? No, I'll say okay. I'll say thylacines. Yeah, prehistoric times. Prehistoric times. Um, maybe some stupid, awesome dinosaur like Tyrannosaurus Rex or Spinosaurus Aegyptiarchus or something. I guess. Um, oh, oh, hold on. Caveat. Isabel says, assume they fit in perfectly in the modern world. Well, that kind of narrows it down a little bit. <laughs> no, no, no. She's not saying they have to fit in perfectly. She's just oh, assume okay. they do. It's not a problem. All right. Well, I think that a gigantic arch predator, <clears throat> arch predator, such a controversial term these days. There's a story there. Um, to do with the as darked paper that Mark Whitten and I published in PJ a couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think like a, 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 a giant super predator, like a tyrannosaur, would. Ooh, I don't know. So big, big So fanboy, Darren. So fanboy. Yeah, but that's because I think they they genuinely are awesome, fascinating animals. So you're a genuine fanboy. Uh, I'm I'm an awesome bro boy. Yeah. Maybe maybe it should. Okay, something small and crappy and boring there. Yeah, yeah. Um, Some sort of um, insignificant hypsilophodont or something. Or you know, or you know, a temnospondyl, a temnospondyl, or Archegosaurus, or some some sort of eriops, pumy ratty mammal. Related to modern ratty mammals. <laughs> uh, <laughs> one of them Miocene hamsters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it looks like an ordinary hamster, but it's from the Miocene, man. Yeah, well, there were lots. There were lots more hamsters back then. You cricketodon, the <laughs> the Miocene Mediterranean hamster. Dino Galerix, the giant um, Miocene hedgehog. Although it's not a spiny hedgehog, it's a moon rat, gymnast-style furry hedgehog. Um, <laughs> one of the little shrew things. I don't know if Elsa Panzeroli listens to this podcast, does she? <laughs> don't know. <laughs> She'll love it. She'll love it. Um, Ascalotherium, little, little shrew. But it's a Mesozoic stem <laughs> mammal. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, okay, so yeah, I'm going to agree with thylacine as well. I like that one. It's such an unusual animal, really, in many ways. Um, and I'm going to what like the prehistoric ones. It just has to be a sauropod. It has to be a no, big. It has to be a big sauropod. No, you're going for predators. Yeah, yawn. No, <laughs> really, really big sauropod. Brachiosaurus, okay. one of these giant diplodocids. Yeah, oh, any of them would do. Bigger than Diplodocus. I, I want them to be <clears throat> big. You know, I didn't think of them. The size of a ocean liner kind of thing. Yeah, one of the really big ones. Like your your Barosaurus painting. That's right. I thought that painting was quite good. <laughs> oh, really? Praise, <laughs> praise it was indeed. All right. Praise indeed. It was not too bad, not too shoddy. <laughs> not too um, shoddy. <laughs> 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 what are those little dinosaurs next to it? And where are the people? You said there are people in the picture. I can't see any people. No, no, there's two versions online. I, I am kidding. I, is, I know yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. I did yeah. see the one with the two little... The people like, are so arms. small that lots of people can't see them because the, the, the animals are so big. Yeah, the um, the little dinosaurs are um, dinosaurs. No, I meant the the, the diplodocuses. Is, oh, right, yeah. What are those puny things? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so... <laughs> Full-size Diplodocus, as far as we know. Although Diplodocus probably will will find a giant one of them, too. We probably already have, right? Probably synonymize it with something like Supersaurus or... Uh, God, it's also confusing, those big big, uh, specimen. Seismosaurus is generally now considered to be a Diplodocus of some kind. Ah, okay. Seismosaurus, all right. But but it's not as big as was originally... um, Promoted. It's still pretty big, though, isn't it? It's still oh, yeah, substantially still bigger than the um, the 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 famous mounted one that you see everywhere, except the Natural History <laughs> Museum in London. Now. <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to those who don't know, we did cover that in a previous episode, and I think we both agreed it was a pretty dumb idea, really. But it's happening anyway. It's happening right now. Um. Yeah, so you you should say, I don't know if you have said, but the reason for showing that super gigantic Barosaurus is actually because there is, as yet, I think they published it as a preprint, haven't published it as a final paper, but but Mike Taylor and Matt Wadle have um, yeah presented evidence on uh, fragmentary remains, I like the cervical vertebrae as per the norm, but bits and pieces of uh, Barosaurus that indicate that it was one of the biggest sauropods. Yes. I mean, obviously, mass estimates of this sort of size get really uncertain, really uncertain, but length is a little more sure, and it's it's oh, yeah. it's very, very, very long and big, dimensions, yeah. dimension-wise. Um, yeah, you can – they've written about it a bit on um, SVPOW, if any of our listeners don't know about that. It's worth going and having a look at SVPOW. It's quite readable. And sauropod vertebra picture of the week – Yep. Which you would think would make a boring blog, but is in fact one of the most fascinating blogs about dinosaurs. Yeah. Yeah, originally set up by me as well, but I thought yeah. I need to devote my efforts to Tetsu. I'm not bragging, that's true. Yeah, You can go find photographic evidence of you in the, in the T-shirts and everything, right? Exactly. Exactly. <clears throat> 
Right. So, yeah, I li- and I like the idea of, I don't know, you have to have some, I don't know, would you have an allotted place for it? But somewhere, yeah, we've got this super gigantic sauropod, just one of them. So yeah, we, we just thought we'd bring back one of them. And, uh, oh, it turns out they're parthenogenetic and it produces 80, 80 a year. Oh, no. That'd be funny. Um, yeah, sort of reminds me of the giant space bat angel dragon from the Iron Giant book, which uh, you may or may not know very well. But uh See, the, my problem with bringing back something like Tyrannosaurus, right, is that, mm. yeah, I would be fascinated to see a Tyrannosaurus. Of course I would. But I already have a feeling for what, like, a six-ton land animal looks like. You look at a really big elephant, you look how it moves. Yeah, Tyrannosaurus is going to move in a different way, sort of. But what does a, like, a hundred-ton land animal look and move like i feel like it would be an experience that you just cannot imagine um, have you ever seen a big whale a big whale like a baleen whale in real life no not in real life and i of course, haven't yeah but i'm told by people that go and see you know like blue whales in the field it's like you know you know exactly in your mind how big it is in numbers but to actually see it see an animal that size is something that's you know difficult to yeah Mm. Yeah, exactly. I think it would be absolutely spectacular, but difficult to do to see whales, I guess. And also, um, they're in the water, which does make it somewhat less interesting, I guess, to me. I feel like it's a different sort of thing. You expect it to be foreign anyway, but moving on land is something you're intimately familiar with. We do it all the time. And to see an animal that big do it would be really interesting mm-hmm. <clears throat> so yeah that's why i'm going with the super giant sauropods okay so i think that's a good set of answers yeah so so th- we both say thylacines because we love them and extinct animals i say fascicotherium but i'm not really serious <laughs> i'd actually i actually I, I probably would actually go for one of the big as dark it's has a god oh yeah well that's a good answer too yeah and, of course, that could seg into a long discussion, but we'll avoid that. And John says a super sauropod. So there you go, Isabel. Um, a bit bit of brief follow-up that I'm just reminded about. Um, Isabel also asked uh, in, in a previous question, uh, what's the best way to, uh, you know, get like stepping stone knowledge to rather than reading technical papers? And when we had this discussion, John and I were saying whether we should read, you know, whether you should look at textbooks or Wikipedia or whatever. Um, a thing that, we both forgot to mention, and someone brought to my attention. I'm sorry, I've forgotten who. Uh, review papers apparently are, are well, not apparently. Review papers have also been pointed to as a good way of getting into a subject, but um, yeah. mm, I st- still have to find the review paper and know what's worth reading in the first place. So, so these there are these very good papers where a given expert in a field just does a nice ten page or more technical paper and says this is this is our understanding of the situation right now and, and does a good job of condensing uh, the knowledge of the field so uh, yeah just thought, yeah just that is a good answer but the difficulty is finding them and finding the good ones right? yeah because a good review paper is actually really really useful and good <laughs> yeah if you can find one then go for it um all right uh, okay, I'm going to skip this paper size one because I think I might email them back and say, is this actually a cash for question? I won't tell who sent it in case it's not meant to be a cash for question, but the question is, John, will this paper size, will this size paper be big enough? Now, 
you may think this is just a stray email that relates to something else I'm doing, but it doesn't. <laughs> and it came with a it came with a um with a donation to Tetrapod Zoology. So it's a bit of a mystery. Um, so if the person that sent that in wants to get in touch again and tell us if this is indeed intended for a cash question or whether it relates to something else. Anyway, let's move on. Because we have no idea how to answer that. Well, just say yes. Yes. Okay, <laughs> Darren. Yes. You haven't filled in who this cash for question is for, so we have to skip right. that one. Okay. <laughs> right. This one's from Dev. <laughs> this slow clap. <laughs> yeah, well done. Sorry, anonymous cash for questioner. Darren is incompetent. Right, so um, this one from Devin Myers. Do you think people interested in dinosaur appearance, behavior, and ecology rely too much on modern analogs? Specifically, I'm thinking about people that depict dromaeosaurs with the colors of hawks, brachiosaurs, little more than oversized giraffes, and ceratopsians behaving exactly like herding bovids. I think this thing sort of thinking really undermines how unique non-avian dinosaurs were and the ecosystems are a part of. Seeing that, <clears throat> seeing that you two are very interested in life appearance and behaviour of dinosaurs, getting your opinion on would be on what I see as a pervasive problem would be great. Thanks. Go down. So, I think this is a good question. I think this is one of those issues that sorts the... the What? Sorry, I thought, I thought you were trying to interrupt me there. I think this is one of the things that sorts the wheat from the chaff, the the babies from, from the grown-ups, the babies from the grown-ups. Because um, and not wanting to offend anyone who's ever produced paleo art, I think that if it's obvious that someone has done something that's really clearly based on an inappropriate modern analog, inappropriate. We'll come back to that. Then it kind of shows that they haven't done the, the sort of level of you know they haven't done the research. They aren't at the level of expertise you should expect. So, yeah, a lot of those – okay, first of all, there aren't – let's say there aren't that many people that are doing that. So um, I think the maybe some of the things Devin has in mind, so dromaeosaurs looking like hawks, it's the flavor of the living animal. It's not – it shouldn't be them actually copied literally the, the color scheme of a, a given living species. I think that – I think I think when you do that, when you do give the exact uh, color pattern or um, uh, colors of a living animal, put it on a fossil animal, it's it's if you recognize it. To me, it's like it doesn't work. It's like, well, why did you copy that on? You know, there's 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 a therizinosaur online, for example, that's based on a giant panda. And when I see that, I think, well, I see why you did that. You thought because maybe you're implying that it's maybe a giant panda analog, but um, but immediately you're making people think of giant pandas, and it's like, surely, yes, in in keeping with what Demon said, you, you should have gone with something specific to the ecology of the animal. It wasn't exactly like a giant panda, it may have been vaguely like it, so so you should have given it something, you know, looser and more giving it this, like, hint of uh, similarity. Where there are um, pictures that, are, that do look... More specifically, like um, I'm rambling here. I'm try what I'm trying to get at is, you know, there are these artistic reconstructions that show circles of uh, horned dinosaurs, yeah. where they form like a circle to protect the babies, and um, that's based on. I remember it being this. The oldest painting I know of, the oldest illustration I know of it that, that shows it, is by Mark Hallett, and I remember hearing it was done based on the. Oh, no, no, I was going to say based on 
Horner, but I think Horner actually criticizes he criticizes it in that T Rex book. It might be Martin Lockley, but I'm not sure. Uh, don't want to. Mm. Yeah, it's, I think it's in, in yeah. um, it's in Dinosaurs Past and Present, and uh, yeah, he does mention it is an idea from a scientist that he is reconstructing. So, but yeah, mm. just doesn't seem like a, a good one. And I think, I think in cases like that where there's a specific bit of behaviour, it often now this also um, links to discussions we've had about walking with dinosaurs, which we covered some episodes back. There are specific cases in walking with dinosaurs where behavior of living animals was superimposed onto fossil ones because the fossil ones were basically, it was implied they were analogs of the living species. And that was frustrating because those fossil animals, we have information on their own ecology and lifestyle. There's stuff we know about, you know, we don't, obviously we don't know much, but we know some stuff indicating that they were doing something, their own thing. And therefore, that discounts the idea that they were doing this thing that's present in this modern alleged analog, which often isn't analogous at all once you get to know the animals. So that strikes me as a weakness. It's like, well, you should have, if you were actually researching on that fossil animal, you should have found out that stuff about the things that are unique to it. You shouldn't have just superimposed this modern animal view onto it. So that, that's more yeah. or less all I have to say on that. Uh, I mean, obviously, I could ramble and talk more nonsense but i think that i think first of all first of all in general this isn't a big problem when i think of all, you, you go and look at all the reconstructions of, of brachiosaurs for example um are people modeling them on giraffes well not really there's the loose flavor of giraffes and there's a handful of reconstructions that give them reticulated patterns like giraffes okay. but there aren't really there isn't really much more than that i mean horned dinosaurs yeah they're like i say you know the, there's the flavour of them being like cattle or bison or whatever, but mm, there isn't there isn't that much. Um, but when, but on the other hand, when people do do these things, yes, it, it is kind of like a a red flag. It does show they haven't thought about the animals uh, in enough detail. They haven't looked at the information we've got, and and they've often relied on inappropriate analogs. Uh, and for example, the big bugbear with dinosaurs is people thinking only of mammals and not knowing enough or not thinking enough about um, the behavioural diversity of living uh, reptiles, not just birds, but crocs, lizards, snakes, etc., which all do uh, lots of interesting things. Yeah, so there's a problem when you've got false analogies and the reconstruction relies too much on a a false analogy. In general, I agree that this isn't actually a huge problem and also – there are times when an artist will take a particular bit of anatomy right, and superimpose soft tissue generally and superimpose it on a dinosaur. Now, often people will criticize that, like that's just a thing from a thing, right? Whatever. But there's really strong artistic reasons to do this sort of thing because if you copy something from life, it's got a depth and a flavor that is virtually impossible to make up. And it certainly leads your reconstruction to looking much more like an actual animal than something made up from your head. Now, there's a obviously, if you if everyone was infinitely skilled, they would be able to do this in a way that was absolutely true to 
what we think about dinosaurs, but a lot of the time, a lot of this stuff isn't even known, right? And so I will defend artists somewhat in taking bits of anatomy and superimposing them, soft tissue anatomy and superimposing them on dinosaurs because it is a good way to get that sort of flavor of something real. Um, ideally, you want to blend it enough and tweak it enough that it's not exactly the same so that people don't think, oh, we know it looks exactly like this. But, I, yeah, I think that is somewhat mm. defensible. Art isn't magic, people. You have to rely on references and stuff, right? Yeah. You and also have to, if, if, you are, if you're going to do what you've just described, it also obviously has to be consistent with the evidence that we have. And in some yeah. cases, in some cases, it is consistent because we know next to nothing. But in other cases, it is inconsistent. And, okay, this is more to do with life appearance than behavior and ecology. But we've mentioned before the, the habit of giving... Um, sauropods elephant-like skin yeah which okay sorry the list sorry to the listener who pointed this out to me i've forgotten who it was but someone pointed out to me that john gersher did actually put scales on that skin if you look close up you can see even though it's deeply wrinkled wrinkled and fissured it is scaly but even so this this the wrinkles the extensive elephant-like wrinkling he gave it is yeah yeah sure dinosaurs big dinosaurs sure they would have had wrinkles in a few places but um they wouldn't have had elephant-like skin and uh, that's a good example of someone looking at a modern analog and just running with it and of course that that particular example just will not die people are still doing that given dinosaurs elephant like wrinkly skin yeah often where you can't often where there's seemingly no indication of scales <clears throat> yeah this is a problem find an appropriate analog for the piece bit of anatomy you're looking at don't find a whole overall analog for an animal and then superimpose all that bits of all those bits of anatomy on on a on a dinosaur that's going to lead to a lot of mistakes because we know stuff about these things, right? So, yeah, if you can find that, for example, yeah, it's fine trying to look at some fossils of um, sauropod skin, for example, um, and trying to reconstruct it, but you're not going to get the way it folds and stuff in joints right. It's just really difficult. And in that case, you're probably going to need to look at some modern analogs of that whatever sorts of properties you think that skin has and try to copy those folds so in that case the use of analogy in modern modern analogs in specific bits of anatomy is i think actually absolutely necessary you can't avoid it and so i will defend that i don't know whether that's what devin's talking about though i think he's talking about more the gross stuff that you're talking about where you just take an animal like oh this is like a giraffe or this is like a cow and then just sort of superimpose all those bits of anatomy on it which is mm. contradicts what we know a lot of the time mm -hmm. so yeah i yeah, yeah the yeah. color stuff i don't care about that i mean we know that the colours of animals, the reconstructed animals, is wrong anyway, so I don't really care if it's exactly the same as we have yeah. I, I, It's distracting for people that know, mm -hmm. and I think, yeah, in the panda bear case, it's a bit like, well, that looks exactly like a panda. I think it's a bit of a distraction, uh, maybe, but I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't know how much of a problem I have with that. Yeah, I'm kind of concerned that it's one of those... Um What's that thing called where you're a massive nerd and you derive great pleasure from basically scoring nerd points? Well, it's partly the way you watch films, right? 
So you're like watching the, oh, reference, 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 reference. Um, yeah. Which is, it, yeah, if you're going to do that, it, yeah, it's very distracting. I can see why it's distracting, but I'm not, I'm generally not someone that looks at things like that. So I don't, it doesn't bother me really very much. Yeah. Cause I feel, cause I feel it's the same kind of phenomenon with some people's art. It's like, oh, yes, I can see you took that from that, you took that from that, you took that from that. And of course, if someone does that repeatedly or too often, then it's like, well, what skill do you have? You, you just, what are you doing? Just, you know, copying. <laughs> Copying, 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 unable to come up with anything yourself. I think we should move on. That's a, a bit of time spent on that. Yep. Um, so so our answer there basically is, yeah, middle of the road somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, let's play. This one's from jo- Joseph Cawley, long-time cash mm. requester. What do you think of the newly described specimens of, uh-oh, I've never said this out loud, Atopodentatus. Atopodentatus? Atopodentatus. <laughs> Atopodentatus? Atopodentatus. <laughs> okay. And its new interpre- interpretation as an algal grazer. Which v- version of Atopodentatus <laughs> will be included in the big book? Okay, so we discussed Atopodentatus again many, many episodes back when it was first published. Uh, so it's a Triassic marine reptile from uh, China, and um, it's got uh, – it's something like two meters long. It's vaguely kind of like a nothosaur in general form. It's got a longish neck, and um, the first specimen had a mouth shaped like – how do I describe that? Well, it had like sort of either, a yeah, – like an inverted V, yeah, really deep, v. really but really deep and narrow, right? That's right. And then with teeth running up the inner sides. Yeah. So what I've done is I've made uh, like a Vulcan live long and prosper symbol with my hand and then inverted it so my fingers are pointing downwards. And um, yeah, the, this kind of V-shaped slot in the middle, if you imagine teeth, that's how they first published it. And they said, oh my God, this is the craziest thing ever. Is it some kind of like suspension feeder? But then it turned out that that specimen like that was distorted. And then a, a later specimen showed that these two different parts of the v-shaped notch didn't form a v-shaped notch they actually spread out laterally to form like a hammerhead shape and so those teeth weren't arranged in a knot in a like a v-shaped inverted v-shaped notch they were along the leading edges or the ventral edges of projecting that's i didn't know this this is this is quite disappointing isn't it because it's still a funny looking animal but it's not Nearly as weird as it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So so my my thinking is, and I've spoken about this with some of the describers, Nick Nick Fraser, um, caught up with him recently and spoke with him about it. Um, I think that the hammerhead reconstruction, first of all, is the valid one and the v- inverted V-shaped one is distorted. So the yeah. hammerhead one is obviously what I'm – what I'm go- that's reality. That's what I'm going for as far as we can tell. And they published um, – um, I'm trying to remember the name of the first author of the paper. They they published this um, uh, claim they, they, in their paper. They they suggested that it's using this this hammerhead style um, shape of head and these like little teeth to feed on uh, marine algae. And it's like, well, that's a as as a, as an algal grazer. 
They're not the first people to propose this for a marine reptile. A, a similar thing has been proposed for Henidus, which is a very weird placodon, a kind of a turtle-like armoured relative of plesiosaurs from the Triassic of Germany. Uh, that has also been suggested to be feeding on uh, benthic algae, algae growing on rocks or whatever, a little whole story there. But um, I, I think it's not a bad idea. And I can't remember now specifically what they say in the paper, how committed they are to this grazing algae eating hypothesis. But I seem to remember they lean quite heavily on it. They sort of implied that's what it did. And and I would say, and I've heard other people say this as well, that, yeah, it might have done that. But I wouldn't go ahead and say that that is the thing that it did. There's like potentially like, say, 10 things it could have done, like with a with a broad with a broad head. Whether you've got small teeth, large teeth, short teeth, long teeth, you can be potentially feeding on, you know, like worms buried in substrate. You could be sensing for things, animals of, of, of all kinds buried in substrate, projecting from substrate, clinging to rocks. Um, you know, you think of hammer-headed sharks. I mean, they do quite a, a bunch of things. And one of the things that some of them do very well is sense. Um, okay, they, so they use their Ampullia of Lorenzini and their electro sense. But, um, yeah, they're detecting fish or you know crustaceans or whatever hiding yeah. in the substrate um i think those options are available to a tobidentatus i'm kind of inclined to think as is the case with quite a few of these weirdly triatic reptiles the fact that it's hard to pin them down on a specific ecology there's nothing there that says ah this thing was a specialist for doing one job it's it's not an anteater it's not a dedicated herbivore or leaf stripper or bark breaker or something it's like they're probably doing a bunch of things and they've probably got an anatomy that is adaptable enough that they can do uh, a bunch of things so if you're like a if you've got a generalized postcranium that allows you to walk on land but swim and clamber around on the seafloor and you've got a mid-length neck so you can probably you know poke around in fissures and dig in the ground dig in the substrate and and lift your head up into the water column and you've got this like, you know, T-shaped head, then, yeah, it looks to me like you can probably do a set of things, which could include grazing on marine plants, but could just as easily involve, I don't know, you know, grabbing like invertebrates of some kind, finding things under the substrate. Yeah. Sort of Can't like say I've thought about it. Little shovely sort of action. Yeah. 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 Um, Yes. I think there's a bunch of options available. But it is, you know, the algal grazing is obviously a contender, uh, you know. Um, so nothing as anatomy uh, precludes, that. precludes it. And it is sort of, but it's a, yeah, it's a plausible story. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, these sort of drastic reinterpretations of anatomy that happen sometimes, right? But sort of reminds you that, uh, fossils are often really tricky. <laughs> they can be such a, they can look okay, but actually be such a mess when you get down to it and try to look at them closely because crucial bits are smashed and you can't see how the angles go together at all. It's really, um, it's interesting, isn't it? That these things can go wrong like this. But I think it's because people underestimate just how crappy even like a relatively complete fossil can be when you actually try to go and reconstruct mm. the way things fit together. Well, yes. Yeah, so there were there's a large number of reconstructions that show a topodentatus with that original, very strange uh, inverted V-shaped um, rostrum, yeah. and 
And if we had never, if we hadn't ever found a second specimen, and the second second specimen is very well preserved, um, it seems, then um, yeah, we would we would have we would have gone with that. Um, I should have said that the lower jaw in this animal has also got that weird T-shaped thing, which hmm, does that kind of support the idea of it of it, you know, if of it grazing or something is. Well, yeah, that it needs to occlude on the whole surface of the tea, not just the. Um, That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it, hopefully, they'll find additional specimens, and hopefully, someone will get to the stage where they can do like tooth microware, or they find stomach contents, mm-hmm. and that's really going to be the the clincher, I suppose. I just, like I say, as usual, not doing this without looking properly at the paper. My recollection is from the paper that it's just a suggestion. It's not that it's not that there isn't enough there isn't there aren't enough pieces of evidence put forward to, you know, say we can say this based on multiple lines of evidence. No, it's just a suggestion based on the overall morphology of the head. And for those who don't know, saying that a marine reptile was a herbivore is quite a big deal because finding like a fossil herbivorous marine reptile is kind of like been seen as the holy grail of Mesozoic marine reptileology because mm-hmm. um it's it seems to be quite difficult for tetrapods to become for, for marine tetrapods to become herbivorous and the one hypothesis there is that uh due to you know um fer- fermentation and so on her, herbivores generally produce lots of gas and uh, producing lots of gas obviously um, interferes with buoyancy and it can be it's presumed that it's difficult to evolve if you are already herbivorous. You need to do a and lot maybe, more farting then don't they? <laughs> Rapidly. Maybe you can yeah and the group that have done it the groups that are aquatic or marine herbivores so like Sirenians and Desmostylians um they were already herbivorous before they invaded the aquatic realm. Yeah. But if you ha- if you are an aquatic animal and you then take to eating plants, this is I'm not saying this is again this is not a thing that's cut and dried and done and not open for discussion. It's like no, th- that's the ideas that we have that are out there. It's like we don't actually know. But yeah. um, there's been a suggestion that um, a Cretaceous sphenodontian, another Mesozoic sphenodontian, where they come up twice this episode. Uh, there's been a suggestion that another one of the Mexican Cretaceous forms is um, potentially uh, like a marine iguana-like herbivore, and like I say, uh, part-time herbivory has been suggested for some placodonts. Yeah. I think we should stop there again. Could yeah. say a lot more, um, but uh, cool animal, Atopodentatus, and it's and it's new. It was only it was originally published. What do you reckon? I would say 2014. Ah, uh, 2014 is what I was going to say. Yeah. And then the new, the new specimen, the hammer-headed one, that was 2016. Yeah, yeah, it is cool. Either way, it's pretty cool. So, um, yes, it, as I say, slightly disappointing. The hammerhead thing is less strange, but yeah, yeah, uh, still pretty odd. And yeah, having a herbivorous, uh, if that is indeed what's going on, is pretty interesting. Yes, I have a new uh, question on um, Mesozoic Marine Reptiles, which has just come in, but I think, Madhu, thank you, but I think we're going to have to leave that to next time. Yeah, I've got to go. I've got to eat lunch. I'm starving to death, you see. Yeah, because only you eat lunch, yeah. Um, Well, you could have had it beforehand, but there were reasons I couldn't have it beforehand, and I don't eat breakfast, so starving to death, Darren. I have to go eat lunch. 
I acquired a famous pet animal yesterday. Oh, yeah, a cane toad. Milo the cane toad, who stung off stage and screen, uh, formerly belonged to Vicky Cools, who you all know, she's a Tezucon regular, and Vicky um, works in the world of natural history television based in Bristol. Uh, loads of science documentaries and natural history documentaries. And um, yeah, uh, Milo the Toad is no longer was no longer required for their services, and uh, I am now the proud owner of Milo. And um, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, I'm going to give Cuddly. him a giant... Cuddly. Giant, I, I've handled him a couple of times, or uh, ostensibly here. We're not totally sure what sex he is. But um, yeah, going to give him a big viv and deck it out with plants and everything. It's going to be great. Cool. And uh, let the dog play with him and lick our hands afterwards. Just kidding. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, where is it? Where, I've forgotten where the cane toad's native to. It's South American. South American, yeah. And then it was introduced to, uh, um, like the Hawaiian islands and other places in the Pacific. And from there, the, the Hawaiian ones were then taken to Australia. And I don't think they popularly had the name cane toads prior to being taken to Australia because, of course, they're called cane toads because of their association with uh, sugar cane. That they, they were introduced to eat the cane beetle. <laughs> and, of course, it's this famous disaster in terms of yeah. um, biological control. But outside of um, this recent event, it was generally known as the marine toad because they are quite tolerant of brackish water. And I think they're also called the neotropical giant toad as well. But formerly Bufo marinus. But if you follow the froster tail taxonomy, which I'm inclined to for toads, then it's Rinella marina. So, um, and uh, Milo is big. Milo's like, you know, fill up, fill up your hand yeah. were you to hold him slash her. So uh, that's yeah. cool. I've always wanted a toast. Yeah. Just trying to think. I think in Australia it's pretty common that if you do a dissection, it's a cane toad, like a frog dissection, which is the classic like high school dissection. So, yeah, I think I've, I've dissected a couple of cane toads. Anyway. A fa- yeah. Got to go. Got to okay. go. Really hungry. Yeah. Oh, Christ. Okay. <laughs> right. So, there you go. That's your lot, <laughs> listeners. Hope you enjoyed it. Yeah. Okay. You. Uh, Twitter. What? What's your oh, Twitter? Yeah. Um, at... You like me because I'm a scoundrel. Do I have enough scoundrels in your life? I happen to like nice men. I'm a nice man. <laughs> um, Patreon. Patreon. Darren's Patreon is current is www.patreon.com forward slash Tetsu currently infested with Temnus Spondles. John is also on Patreon. Yep. Patreon.com forward slash John Conway. There's an expanded Tetsuniverse, which includes online comics and stuff. And, of course, there is the Tetsu Wiki, which has mostly died due to spam. Um, and if you like us, buy our books. Yeah. If you haven't done that already. Yeah. And, okay. uh, oh, uh, the Hunting Monsters one comes out as a proper book real soon. Okay. Not your crappy ebooks. Okay. All right. All right. Good. Bye. 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 <laughs> <laughs>